When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatton rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Welcome, fight fans, to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast. This is the life and times of, and today we're going to be speaking to the original Spice Boy, Mr. Ryan Rhodes, two times British champion, four times world title challenger, European champion, and he spent many of his years down at the Winkerbank gym under the late, great Brendan Ingle, sharing the gym with the likes of Prince Nazim Hamed, Errol Graham, Johnny Nelson. Great stories that come out of this episode with Ryan. Really enjoyed sitting down to discuss his career and some of the great stories throughout some of his career. The fights, the lead-up to fights, travelling around, following the other careers of Nazim Hamed, Johnny Nelson, and also some of the great fights he was involved in. The likes of Paul Silky Jones, the likes of Jamie Moore, sharing the ring with Sol Canelo Alvarez towards the end of his career. Just some great memories nights for him and it was really an honour to sit down to discuss all of his career and also what life's been like for him after boxing, what he's up to these days, what does he get up to, he's a trainer, he's a manager, I'll let him tell that story but before we get into this episode please as always go and find us on social media, we're at BTR Boxing Podcast on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook if you use Apple Podcasts, we're on there. Find us, BTR Boxing Podcast. If you use any other podcasting app out there, like Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, Spotify, we're on there too. Please go and subscribe to us. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the podcast and of the episodes. We really, really appreciate it. So this is it. This is the life and times of the original Spice Boy, Ryan Rhodes. 
So I'm delighted to say I have got Ryan Rhodes to sit down and give us his life story and his life and times of Ryan. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me today. Yeah, no, not a problem. You know, I love talking about what I've achieved and what I've done in my life and what I'm doing now. So we're going to talk about your career in boxing and, and life after boxing. But before that, of course, we want to start at the beginning and we want to talk about where it all started for you. So where the journey you know, b- began. Did it start growing up as a, as a kid? Was you a fan of boxing? To be fair, no, I wasn't really. I was six years old, so boxing weren't really anything that I was into or anything a part of my life. None of my... You know, my dad, my uncles or anything like that weren't involved in boxing. It was basically me. I was started was I was six years old and I had so much energy that, you know, my mum couldn't really control me what, what, what I was doing. I had that much energy. My dad used to work away quite a lot, two, three weeks at a time. And, and so I did one morning to, to take me down to speak to, to Errol Graham, who had a, a jewellery shop, a gold shop in the local Sheffield market. And basically, she took me down. Well, I, I tell a lie. Basically, she dragged me down. She dragged me down and chucked me in front of Errol and said, what can I do with him? I just can't control him. I, he's got too much energy. He's always on the move. He won't sit down. He's, he's, he's this, he's that. And so Errol said to my mum, you know, bring him down to the gym, to Brendan Ingle's gym at Winkerbank, the famous Winkerbank gym, uh, Saturday morning. And it all started from there. Do you remember the first time you went into the Winkerbank? I did. My mum bought me a brand new pair of, pair of boxing gloves, some Lonsdale boxing gloves from uh, a, a sports shop in Sheffield that, funnily enough, I, we ended up being sponsored by a sports shop called Sug Sport. Uh, Errol, Johnny, uh, Naz, we were all sponsored by this sports shop. And I, I remember my mum buying my first pair of boxing gloves. When I went into Brendan's gym, I just remember this smell. And I thought, wow, I've never smelled that before. And it was just like a... A sweat smell like a sawdust gym, hard, sweaty. You know, I walked into the gym and there were big guys, big men with, with hairy chests, sweating and in the rings while they were sparring, they were making like noises and I'm thinking, what's going on here? And uh, I remember looking looking up at the far side of the ring and, and on the chair was obviously Brendan. He sat on that chair for, you know, until... You know, until the very end, that chair was Brendan's throne. <laughs> and I remember him sat in that chair in the left-hand side of the corner of the ring and he waved me and my mum up. We went up and when he opened his mouth and these Irish, this Irish accent came out, I, I, I just I thought, well, 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 why is he speaking like that? And he said, so you want to fight? Uh, so you want to be a boxer? And, and it started from there, you know, that, that smell, the Irish accent of Brendan's. I remember it like it was yesterday. So when you first went into the Winkerbank, obviously you met Brendan. Who else was there training at the time? You said Harold was obviously, Errol was one of the guys down there at the time. So, yeah, so Errol was the main guy in the gym at the time. He was British and uh, I think he was European champion or just British champion at the time. There were Johnny Nelson, um, either British champion or soon to be British champion. There was Fidel, Fugger or two who was there. There was Brian Anderson there. I think he was British champion at the time as well. So many faces. Glenn Rhodes, Wayne Window, uh, Mick Mills, Peter Bennett. Who else can I think of? I'm missing some out and, and I feel bad that I'm even missing that people out because they were all a part of, of my, my, my growing up and, and looking up to them. Uh, a guy called Darren, Darren McKenna, a guy called Darren Mount, 
you know, so many, so many names I can't even think of. But they, they were the main. And obviously, Naz, Naz was, you know, Naz was a couple of years older than me. Naz was, uh, I walked in at six. Naz was probably, probably eight or nine years old, a couple of years older than me. So, yeah, they were my, they were my uh, brothers, so to speak, growing up. Yeah. So, at the time when you went in there, did you realise the level uh, of the fighters that were in the gym at the time being so young and stepping into the gym for that first time seeing all these guys I, that were, were getting that success did you re- did you understand at that time no i don't think i'll be honest i don't think i did it six years old uh all i remember is that i remember like photographers being down there camera crew that being down there Errol with his belt johnny with his belt brian anderson with his belt and i just you're just in awe you're just like in amazement and 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 you know, I just thought one day, wow, wouldn't it be great to, to be a champion or to be to have pictures took or to, to, to be filmed. And and believe me, it weren't it weren't that long. Brendan had cameras and uh, photographers in that gym weekly, at least at least once, twice a month. It were you know, it was a it was a gym to be at uh, in in the early in the in the eighties, uh, late middle eighties, in the eighties, yeah, it definitely were the gym to, to be involved in. So when you was there, you was training, you decided to, to, to go into the amateur side of the sport. So talk talk me through a little bit about that and, and obviously how that has massively changed from what it was when you were growing up to what it is now. What was it like when you turned amateur and, and the amateur style and the, the way that the scoring is? And just explain to me, to, to the people that are listening, how different it is now to what it was then. Well... I mean, I went in at six years old, so I could have my first amateur fight uh, till I was 11. So I was training five, four or five years before I even had a, an, an amateur fight. And as, you know, as, as it were, I was training from six years old like a professional because that gym was just full of professionals. Yeah, it did have its amateurs, but everybody trained with everybody and everybody watched and looked up to the pros. And you just, Copied them. You did exactly what they did. And I remember having my first amateur fight. I was in Liverpool. We, I, I can't remember the kid's name or I fought, but I, but I went all the way to Liverpool. I bought, my mum my and dad bought uh, green and gold shorts, green and gold vests. Uh, and I had a long, shiny green and gold gown that were our colours, that were Brendan's colours back, back in the day. And I remember winning my first amateur fight. All my friends, all my family, everybody came to support me. And it was just an unbelievable night. And I thought, you know, I've, I've been trained for, for for five, four or five years before I even could could have an amateur fight. When I had that first amateur fight, I thought, this is this is what I want to be. I want to be a I want to be a boxer. I want to be a pro boxer. And it just went from from there really. Uh, I ended up having because at first I never you never had to wear it gods when I was amateur. Yeah. It was all, only until probably the last two or three years as an amateur where we had to start wearing egg guards and I weren't an egg guard fan I'll be honest but it was something something we had to do when we used to spar uh, we used to wear egg guards so it was something what we had to do in the in the the amateur game it was something we all had to we all had to do and we all had to get used to it but I had 67 amateur fights I ended up I lost 13 13 of them amateur fights I won four national titles uh, I won two schoolboys, a junior ADA and a boys club. I ended up boxing, I think, twice for England. Once I went to Russia. I captained, I captained our team when, when we went to Russia. 
boxed twice in, in Russia. I won one and lost one. And, you know, you know listen, it was, it was an unbelievable experience as an amateur. But we had, but, but all the way through my amateur career, I had a pro, a pro, a pro uh, stance. I had a pro, that was my style, being with pros and training with pros from being six years old. That's, that's, what, that's what my style was. So you've made the decision to turn professional which was in 1995, and it was on the 4th of February 1995 in Cardiff, uh, on the undercard of Steve Robinson making a defence of the WBO featherweight title, alongside people like Robin Reed, who was also very early on in his career at this point as well, and you were down there on the card. What was the feeling like when you made the professional debut? I just thought that this, you know, now from the amateurs to the pros, I thought, that's it, now I've cracked it, I'm getting paid for this, trophies, Trophies didn't pay didn't pay bills back in the day, so I thought that's it. I've cracked it now. I'm I'm getting paid for something I love doing. I love fighting. Yep, went to uh, went and boxed against uh, Lee Crocker uh, on the undercard of Steve Robinson. And I remember, I mean, I was I've always been a good ticket seller, but even to Scotland, I think we took about we took two or maybe even three coaches full of of me, my friends, my family, me my family's friends and things like that. I've always been a big ticket seller. And my first fight, I went out there and uh, I thought I thought it was going to be easier. I thought, you know, I've been doing this from six years old, it's going to be easier. And bang, I got knocked down twice in the first round on my first professional fight. I thought, this is not as easy as what I thought. I, went, I remember going back to the corner and Brendan gave me the biggest bollocking. I think he even slapped me at one point. He gave me a roasting. What are you doing? What are you doing? Get your head on job. You know, you you, you make you, you boxing terrible. What you what you think it is? And then, you know, obviously it, it definitely did register what Brendan was saying, what Brendan did, because I went out and knocked him out the second round. You did, you got the victory there. So when you was making your pro debut, you said you sold lots of tickets. Was you working yeah. was you working alongside boxing for that early part of your career? No, to be fair, I was lucky enough that I had a couple of sponsors. So I, I, when I was 16 and I left school, I worked for probably a year before I turned pro. So 16 and a half, I worked for about a year just before I turned pro. I worked around the corner from the gym. Uh, I was getting 50 quid a week. I worked three days a week, only half days. So uh, I trained in the morning and then went to work and then I could train in the evening. So it was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I got 50 quid a week and it was just in like a like a chicken factory around the corner from, from the gym. Uh, I was just packing packing chicken into these packets and putting them down a conveyor belt, wrapping them up. And that went on. I, I did that for probably about a year. And then as soon as I, I, I signed a contract, signed to turn pro, I stopped that. Uh, luckily, I had a few, a couple of sponsors what supported me. I've been lucky enough all the way through my career with sponsors that have helped me support me and, and everything like that. So... As soon as I was 18, I was able to stop working and, and concentrate on boxing full-time. So, nine fights later, after you, made, after you made your pro debut, that's when you got your first shot at a professional title, when you fought Paul Jones for the vacant British Super Welterweight title, uh, old like middleweight. Yeah, 11, well. uh, 10 fights. I, bo- I beat Silky on the 11th fight, yeah. It was me. It, I had 10 fights, and then boxed Silky on the 11th. So go back, go back and talk to us about that fight going into it. You don't so, obviously all that experience, so, Ryan. Yeah. So me and Silke, we used to train together. Silke, I mean, he was he was one of the game, uh, one of the names that I totally forgot early on uh, when I was telling you I was in the gym at the time. So when I was 
growing up, Silky was in the gym. Silky was a good pro, fighting at City Hall on the undercard of Errol and Johnny. So, yeah, I mean, so on my 10th fight, I beat a uh, former British champion, Del Bryan, up at Concord Leisure Centre. And I beat him, and I beat, yeah, I beat him on points. I beat him on points that fight. And it was only a couple of fights after that. He, he was British champion. He got beat by my former gym mate, Chris Saunders. And then I ended up fighting Del Bryan. I beat him pretty easy on points. And, and then it made, me, uh, it made me number one to fight for the British champion. And, and Silky had moved on. Silky was was training. Uh, I think he was with Matchroom at the time because he just Silky had won a world title against Vernon Phillips. I think it was. He won a world title at Ulster Leisure Centre, and he got stripped of the title because he didn't go to America to defend his title against. I'm, I'm not sure who it were. So they stripped him of his of his world title, and then the straight after that, me and him uh, me and him signed to fight each other for the British title. And, you know, there were a lot of press about that because I was, I was the youngest in 57 years to, to fight for the British title. And, you know, I ended up winning that title and knocking Silky out, thinking it was, I think it was the seventh round I knocked Silky out. Yeah, so, you know, obviously I, I remembered Silky as, a, as one of the main names in the, in the gym back in the ball. You know, I was very confident in my ability and I was very com- confident in building, beating Silky even though he just won a world title the fight before. So moving on from that, Ryan, you became British champion in your 11th fight, and it's at this point during the 90s where, obviously, culturally, we're getting a lot of stuff going on. You know, outside of boxing, you've got all the the music and so much going on around. It was, a, a, for a lot of people, a great period of time. And not long around that time, it was when you got the nickname... Spice Boy. Who who gave you that nickname and where did it come from? It was me and Naz went to a party in London. It weren't it weren't long after the uh, Silky fight. We went to a party in London and the Spice Girls was the main obviously the main attraction in the in this party where we went to. And we came back up and we went in. We was in the gym on the Monday and obviously John Ingle must have found out that we was in London at a party. And it was John Ingle what came up with the name. Uh, Spice Boy and it just stuck from there really so rocking around in London in parties with Spice Girls and then I came back up and John had labelled me as a Spice Boy so that's that's how it happened and the press certainly got a hold of that because that's what they were referring to you in the sports columns when you were picking up the wins afterwards it was like Ryan Rhodes Spice Boy picks up another yeah, win yeah yeah it stuck it, it, it stuck I mean it were, listen the Spice Girls back in the Back in the nineties, were 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 the the you know the main band in the UK, and uh, you know I was flying the flag and, and doing really well in my boxing, so it, it, it tied in well together. It did, and then obviously you carried on your succession throughout nineteen ninety seven, where you fought five times, obviously defended your super welterweight British title a couple of times, and then you moved on. It was it was about moving on and getting into the world rankings at this point. So you then obviously fought for an IBF Intercontinental super welterweight title. You beat Lyndon Scarlett for that. Then obviously you had two more fights before then being given an opportunity at the WBO middleweight title. So. So, going back to 1997 and the end of 1997, the call was made to you to fight for that world title. What was the feeling at the time? What was your, your thoughts around being phoned up to say, right, Ryan, we've got this fight for you. It's Otis Grant and it's for the WBO middleweight title. 
Well, back in the day, I mean, I, 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 I thought I was un, unbeatable. I thought I was invincible. I was only 20, 21, 22 years old, so I didn't think anybody could beat me at the time. And moving up in weight, I was a big, like, middleweight, so I thought moving up in weight is going to help me massively. And I was confident. I was very confident. I mean, uh, Otis Grant was a great fighter. He just, I think he got a draw with a guy called Lonnie Bradley, who was, who was champion, uh, world champion at the time, so he got a draw. And I knew, it, I knew it was the first fight where I thought to myself, I'm going 12 rounds here. I really, really had it in my head that I'm going 12 rounds here. And it was only the inexperience on my part what lost me that fight because I really, really, in the early part of the fight, I held back because I knew I was going 12 rounds. Um, no, one would, no one would go in past, you know, four, five, six rounds. I was, I was knocking everybody out. I was stopping everybody, but that was just the one fight where I thought to myself, I'm going distance here. I don't know why. I don't know what, what the reason were. And, you know, inexperience on my part, I should have just gone for it from the, from the, from the one, from the round one when I fought Otis Camp because it got to round 10, 11 and 12 and I, and I had so much energy. I was, I was, I was, you know, I was chucking Otis Grant on the floor. I was bouncing. I was, chucking combinations and I just left it too late in the fight to, to claw the earlier rounds back and I think I lost by two points or something like that on 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 on, on two of the scorecards so it was just the inexperience of on my part that probably got me beat in that fight and that that's why I lost that fight it's actually a very close fight on the cards because, as you rightly pointed out, you did lose by two points on two two of the cards. But on one of the cards, it was one fifteen, one fourteen. So what we so it was actually a really, really close fight. And as you've said there, given what you felt was a little bit of lack of experience, if you would have applied yourself a bit earlier on in the fight, you more than likely would have won that fight, given how close it was. Yeah, it, that, like I said, it was just experience, and you know you can't buy experience in this game. It were only me. What were it, me? Seven, eighteen fight, seventeenth, eighteenth fight, or something like that. Um, so it was very early on. I mean, I know I'd done what I'd done, and you know I beat the guys I'd beat. You know, former British champion, former world champion, uh, good contenders, good fighters, and but fighting someone like an Otis Grant was that next level, which I weren't. I wasn't. I wasn't used to, and and like I said to you, for some reason, I knew I was going to go twelve rounds. So, I, I, and on my part, I really, really should have gone for it from from round one because, like I said, round ten, eleven, and twelve, I, I still had loads of energy. Um, yeah, so it was just listen. It's the experience, and uh, you know, it's an it's, it's experience. You can't buy experience in boxing, and you know, you need to be involved in it you need to feel it you need to see it to to get anywhere in this game so 1998 comes around you've had six months out of the ring from the Otis Grant fight you come back uh, you only end up having two fights in 98 was there a particular reason for that no I don't know no not really I just you know I was I would, I'd, I'd fight when I when, when I whenever I got a date or whenever whenever something was lined up I was you know I was always always in the gym always active always ready yeah 
don't know why, just had two fights. So you had them two fights in 98, you come back in early 99, had the fight with Peter Mason, uh, obviously won all three of them fights, by the way, by TKO, and then you got another yeah. shot, uh, which was at the interim WBO middleweight title against Jason Matthews. So I should have been fighting a guy, uh, a German guy called Bert Schenk, uh, who was world champion at the time. So Bert Schenk was a boxer, uh, didn't didn't have much power. Fair, yeah, fair, uh, quite a bit of ability and, and boxing ability, but no power. I had a nine week training camp for for Bert Schenk and the Sunday before I was fighting on the Saturday. So five, six days before the fight, I went up for a photo shoot at kind of one of the castles in Sheffield. So we had a photo shoot. I had the uh, English flag on and I was flying the flag for Britain and, and everything like that on this photo shoot and in the car on the way up Brendan said I need to talk to you I said oh what's up Brent he says uh, Bert Schenk's pulled out I went you're kidding he went yeah he went but don't worry we've got you another opponent we've got your Jason Matthews now I just knocked a kid out who, who beat Jason Matthews I think it was Lauren Zorbo I think it was Lauren Zorbo if I'm right he just stopped Jason Matthews and I boxed him and, and stopped him with a body shot in battered him, really. So, again, I was 22, 23 years old, thinking I was invincible, thinking no one could beat me. I'd just beat a kid what had beat Jason Matthews, but not thinking. I've just been training 10 weeks for a kid who's a boxer, a kid, who's a, a kid who boxes and moves and, and gets behind his jab to someone who were probably one of the biggest in middleweight on the scene at the time. But like I said, I were I was I were I were confident in, in my ability. I was confident in you know, I just needed to go in there and, and land one shot on Jason's chin and probably knock him out. And obviously I made the made made a massive mistake my my on my part again in experience that, you know, you, you can't just think like that. You've gotta you've gotta use your boxing and use your brain and use your Use your ability. I went in there and I got stopped in round two, I think it was. Just went in there thinking I could knock him out. And uh, Jason tagged me first and knocked me down and the referee stopped it. So then you come back from that loss to Jason Matthews. Uh, six fights you had then over the space of three years facing guys like OJ Abrahams, Howard Clark, names that were well known obviously on the circuit at that time and that period of time. And then it was 2002 before you'd get another shot at a professional title against Lee Blundell for the WBF Intercontinental Middleweight title. And going back to 2002, long time now, but going back to 2002, yeah. going, back, going back to the Lee Blundell fight, what were your memories of that fight with Lee Blundell, the, the, the build-up to the fight? It was quite a class as a bit of a local-ish derby because of who it was Yorkshire and Lancashire as well. So yeah. memories, of, memories of that fight, Ryan, what are they? So... But the build-up to that fight, I'd, I was in a bit of a, a dispute with Frank Warren. I'd, I was leaving, I'd, I'd split from Frank Warren. And there were issues going on outside the ring with me and Frank and, and obviously my trainer and manager, Brendan. He didn't want to fight Frank Warren. He didn't want to fight on that show. And I wanted to fight. And we decided that we were fighting. And there were, there were things going on in the background which were, were, were playing on my mind massively due to the split with Frank. I remember going into Yoko Bethnal Green uh, with my bag on my shoulder, walking into that ring, thinking, 
I remember, I remember thinking it like it's t- like it was today. I remember walking into uh, in that in that doorway, thinking, "I'm not fighting tonight. Something will happen tonight, and I will not fight tonight. For some reason, I'm not going to fight tonight." And 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 I honestly didn't think I would be fighting that night. I ended up going in the ring. My mind were elsewhere. I had Lee Brundell all over in the first two rounds. I had him down and everything, and he caught me with a couple of shots, and it was nothing meaningful. And I. In the build-up to that, I was sparring with uh, a guy called John Keaton, Buster Keaton. And I remember Keaton hit me with an uppercut in sparring. And I just managed to pull back so he didn't hit my chin. And he hit me on my, on my nose coming up with an uppercut. And he, he ripped and, and tore all my septum on my nose. So I went to hospital. And all they could do was cauterize it. They couldn't do anything. And in that fight, I had Lee all over in the first couple of rounds. And he caught me a couple of times. And my nose started bleeding, and it wouldn't start bleeding, and me just my head went. I thought, I I don't know what I thought to be honest. It was just my head weren't there in that fight that day for 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 a number of reasons, and I ended up getting beat by Lee. And that's what I was just going to touch on. From what you was explaining there, it was like you meant you wasn't a hundred percent in the right mental frame of mind going in, even walking through the doors of the York Hall, knowing yeah. knowing in your own mind. I'm not going to fight tonight and then realising when you get in the ring actually I am in the fight it's going alright yeah. and then and then all of a sudden like you say with the uh, the previous damage to the septum then all of a sudden it just turns on its head so it was more than, than, than one contributing factor to that particular fight and, and how that ended up and that was a fight a lot of people expected you to, to win as well at this point and obviously you got the defeat and then after the fight after you lost that fight where, where did you see yourself going at that point I Maybe. just needed a break yeah I needed a break from the sport I'd, I'd been doing it from, the, from being six years old I mean how old were how, how old I might have been about 27 28 at the time and I just thought you know what have a bit of time out you've done this from being six years old I've, I've, I've lived, breathed, and, you know, at sleep, boxing. That's all I've ever known. The only time I had off from school was when it had anything to do with boxing or with Brendan. So I was with Brendan more than I were with my own, my own parents. If we weren't, if I weren't in the gym on a weekend, I were, we were travelling up and down the motorway with Brendan and, and just supporting a couple of the pros and me and Nathan be in the back seat just listening to Brendan's stories. So... I just think I needed a bit of time out in the end. After the Lee Blundell fight, I think I had about I had about 13 months out where I just completely cut myself away from boxing, and it, it, it was just something I needed. It was just that bit of time out I needed because I'd not I'd not had a rest from being six years old from boxing. So, what was the desire to get back into the ring after having that length of time out and cutting yourself away from boxing, as you stated there? What was it that got you remotivated to get back in the ring again? So. After the Lee Blundell fight, I've been 13 months out. I went back into, I had a, I had a couple of months training um, and I ended up fighting on the Carl Froch undercard at Nottingham Arena. I boxed a kid called Paul Wesley. And I had a couple of fights after that and I just thought I needed to, I needed to, to fight again to find out if, it, if, it, if I wanted to do it, if I really did want to do it. And the couple of fights back, I thought, yeah, I do want to fight. I do want to fight. So I ended up boxing Paul Wesley and Alan Gilbert on a show. And then I thought, do you know what? I need a change. I need something different. I've been down at Brendan Ingalls Gym with Brendan and Dominic and John for 22 years. And it's like doing the same job for 22 years. And 
working with the same people for 22 years is you need a change. You need something different when you've been doing something like that for, for as long as you have. And, and for as hard as the sport is, I started becoming, I think, a little bit stale, a little bit bored with the sport. So I thought, I still want to box, but what do I need to do to get that buzz back? And, and I decided to, to, to leave Brendan and, and Doc John and Dominic, and I sat down and talked to them and I said, look, I still want to box, but I feel I need to try another trainer, try move on and try something else. And, and well, we all agreed. We all, we all split. Amateur Blay was, it was fine. And then I ended up going and joining Dave Caldwell, which obviously I knew Dave Caldwell because he was at Brendan's gym for many, many years as a, as a kid, as an amateur and pro. Uh, and I joined Dave Caldwell and, and all of a sudden the spark was back. I started loving the game again. Just going to take a quick moment out of the episode just to talk about our sponsors for the podcast, which is Bear Attack Boxing. Now, every week you hear me talking about the products that they've got on offer, and every week they're bringing a great new product out on the market, something new, something great, something that you want to get your hands on for a really good price as well. And this week's no different because this week we've got the Bear Attack Boxing t shirt range in two varieties. We've got the orange and the red, lightweight, breathing perfect for training in any condition you need to go and get them checked out they're only 13.99 but they're not the only products that bear attack boxing do if you've been listening to btr boxing podcast for a while you'll have heard the advertisements for bear attack boxing our sponsor and you'll know that every week they're bringing out new products and we've got a great range of products on the market now last week it was the inner gloves at 6.99 we've had the m1 focus pads at 19.99 the pluto glove which is only 24.99 the Power Focus Pads at $19.99 and you've also got the Bear Attack Originals at $24.99 as well so you should go and check them out and check out the quality products that they're bringing just remember and think back to the first time we started advertising Bear Attack Boxing they had one or two products now you're looking at about 15 to 20 products some fantastic high quality boxing equipment so if you're a boxer that listens to this episode then there's no better place to go and get started really for equipment Bear Attack Boxing are the go-to brand for me You've got to look at what else they provide out there. They've got checkerboard gloves, the Fight Pro 1 gloves, the Fight Pro training gloves. Brilliant products. Really good. Tried and tested as well by professionals, by the way. It's not just me selling it. There has actually been professional fighters that are well known that have gone and tried and tested these products and have endorsed them. So... If you've always been thinking, I'm not too sure, I don't know, there's there's all these different companies out there, look no further. Bear Attack Boxing's the place to go for your high-quality boxing equipment. Go and check them out, www.bearattackboxing.co.uk. You can find them all across social media, Bear Attack Boxing. Thanks for listening, and let's get back in to the life and times of Ryan Rhodes. So then you got back into a winning streak. Uh, I think you was on a winning streak for, I think it was a good nine or ten fights, wasn't it, before you then got your next shot at a, a world title? But yeah, like ten, ten fights that you took part in before you got to 2006 and then got in the ring at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff against, obviously, Cardiff's Gary Lockett for the WBU yeah. middleweight title. So you'd had this run of... 10 undefeated fights. Was the confidence back to an all-time high at this point? Yeah, I felt, I felt great. I, I felt absolutely fine. Uh, I was buzzing. I was enjoying boxing again. I was enjoying the training. It was different training. I was Dave was obviously my uh, trainer and Mark Willie was my strength and conditioner. So the buzz was back. I was, I was loving it again. And obviously Gary 
was a big name at the time. He was knocking everybody out. He was doing very, very well as a pro. But I remember Gary back in the day, back in the amateurs. He was always, he was always the way uh, ab- above me, I think, in the amateurs. No, sorry, he was always the way below me in the amateurs. So whenever we'd meet in the quarters or semi-final, he was always the way below me and I was the way below him. And so I knew Gary for many, many years before we even put the gloves on him and fought each other. We just, we never fought as an amateur. Going back to the Gary Lockyer fight then, talk to me about how you portray that now in your mind of how that actually went down on the night. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I knew it was going to be a tough fight. Like I said, Gary was knocking everybody out really, really well. I knew Gary was going to be a, a tough, tough fight, but I was confident in what I was doing. Um, I went in that fight confident. Gary, G- Gary's power were, were decent and, you know, I was catching him, he was catching me. It was a very, very close fight. He caught me, I think, in round five. He caught me on the top of the head. And us fighters, are, you know, he's a soft part of the of the body, the top of the head. He just scrambled my senses. So he knocked me down in round five, just a flash knockdown. Got back up. We're boxing on again. So, yeah. And then round 10, I knocked him down with a big, big knockdown. So, yeah, I, I caught Gary in round 10, knocked him down. It was a heavy knockdown as well. And to be fair to Gary, he got up and he survived that round. I, you know, I chucked absolutely everything in that round. And it was a good fight. It was a really, really good fight. You know, the scorecards were, 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 well, two of the scores were close. One was pretty wide, which I thought, you know, very unfair. A couple of round ringside thought, Thought it were very, very close, and uh, it were a good fight with me and Gary. Twelve good rounds. So then we're going to going forward. Then from t- two years down the line, you're going into 2008. Twelve years after you originally first won a British title, you won it again against Gary Willacombe. Yeah, uh, well, after the Gary Lockett fight, you know, I was re- I was really proud on on. I remember going back to the hotel, and don't forget this was at middleweight with Gary. I remember going back to the hotel, and I was having a shower. A few of my friends and family were downstairs. So I was having a shower. And I think I was in the room with him. I don't know if it was Mark Willie or Dave Caldwell. It was one of the two. Uh, I jumped on the scales just to see, you know, what, what weight I was. And I weighed 11 stone two. So the day before, well, the day before the fight, I weighed 11 six on the day. I'd ate, drunk everything and, you know, uh, on the day of the fight, I'd eaten drunk and, and, and done pro- eat, had my food properly. And that was when I realised, I'm a light middleweight, me. I'm not a middleweight. I'm a light middleweight. When I jumped on them scales and it said 11 stone two, and I showed Dave or Mark, I can't remember who it was. And uh, we all agreed that light middleweight was my weight. And uh, after that fight, after the Gary Lockett fight, I had a couple of fights, got my weight down and fighting back at light middleweight. And yeah, uh, 19... Sorry, 2008, I had uh, the British title again, Gary Wilkham, 11 years on. So Gary had only been beaten by Andrew Facey before he faced off with you. And Andrew Facey, as, as most people will know, and most of the listeners will know, was a guy who was quite synonymous at the time. He'd obviously been in with the likes of Jamie Moore and had back and forth wars with Jamie Moore at the time. Something which you would go on to do uh, not too far along the line from there. But yeah, you beat Gary and then obviously that's 12 years later and back at the same division you was 12 years before winning the British title all over again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Andrew Faith, were a, a gym friend of mine. He was uh, he was in our gym for many, many years. Um, so, so, yeah, obviously I knew Gary 
and you and you face it very very well uh, and obviously he gave me a few tips in the fight but I was I was at my natural weight I was big I was strong I was powerful fast everything so I knew it was my weight and you know when I went into that fight I mean fair play to Gary you know Gary Wilcom I'm, I'm friends with Gary on social media it gave me a good fight bless him it gave me a really really good fight but I was just one step ahead in every department in speed in power in movement and I ended up getting Gary out there in about, I think it was the eighth round or something, Gary uh, Wilcom in that fight. And then you defended the title against Jamie Coyle, and then it was a case of moving on and moving back up the, the world-level rankings when you got the WBC International Super Welterweight title uh, via a unanimous decision over Vincent Vuma. Yeah, I was on the undercard uh, chief support to David A when he had his first fight up at Heavyweight. It was a great event at the Auto Arena in London. We, we packed it out. I boxed uh, Vincent Vuma for the WBC International, which put me in the top 10 in the rankings, in the WBC rankings. So I was on the world, world stage, world ladder again. Uh, and um, yeah, it went from went from strength to strength from that fight. Um, I had a fight, just a mediocre fight against Petrovic on Ricky Atten's charity event, one of Ricky Atten's charity events in Manchester. And then uh, me and jo- Jamie Moore, they made the fight with me and uh, me and Jamie Moore for the European title. And obviously, Jamie was ranked, I think at the time, number three or number four in the WBC rankings. So I knew it was a massive fight for me, a ranking fight for me. And, and obviously the European title, which is a, a great, great uh, title to win. It was, and this was probably one of the best fights I'd personally seen you involved in was the fight with Jamie Moore because it was such a back-and-forth fight between the two years. And at this point in time, Jamie Moore was was knocking out a lot of his opponents. He'd been on a streak of five straight knockout victories in the last five fights before you got in the ring with yourself. So we knew he was going to come to to try and stop you in this fight. But going into it, did you have any reservations uh, about Jamie and about the fact that it was more than likely he was going to come with that type of a game plan to try and stop you? Yeah, I mean, like you say, he stopped his last previous fight before me, so I knew it was going to be a tough, tough fight. Jamie was flying at the time, you know. You know, it's one thing that I would have said. I think Jamie should have fought for for a world title before he even boxed me. You know, he was doing that well. He was beating the kids in the manner he was beating them. So, but yeah, I mean, uh, I expected it being a tough fight. Me and Dave, I remember... There's a, a ledger centre in Rotherham. In fact, the jacuzzi about a week before, about 10 days before, and Dave, Dave looked at me and went, I need to tell you something. I said, what? He went, you know, in this fight, you're probably going to go somewhere where you've never been before. You're going to have to, you maybe even have to pick yourself up, up off the floor. You may even have to, you know, go to the limits you never even thought you would do before. It's going to be a tough, tough fight. But Ryan, I promise you, it's, it's a fight I believe he can win. I said, yeah, no. So our game plan was like expecting a tough fight. We knew it was going to be a tough fight. You know, I expected Jamie to come and bring it. You know, it was in Jamie's back garden. Well, backyard in Bolton. Obviously, Jamie's from Manchester. So we weren't too far from where Jamie lives. Um, but our game plan was to, you know, get out of the way. Don't stand and have a fight with Jamie. Make him miss. When you make him miss, make him pay. So just move around and tie, try and tie Jamie out. And probably around five, round six, you know, maybe if it, if it's around that time, maybe stand and, and try and have, and have a fight with Jamie. 
Well, in the fight, the game plan went straight out the window after round one because it was on top of me too much. What Jamie did, did so well was close the distance and, you know, cut the ring down really, really well, pressure pressure, uh, and put you on the back foot. So and when I went back to the back to the corner in the end of round one, I said to Dave, Dave, I've got to stand there and fight him. I've got to have it out with him. I said, well, you can do this. You've trained on enough. You've done everything right, and 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 you, you you know you're more than capable enough to to stand and have a fight with Jamie. And it was just backwards and forwards from round one to the very end. You know, I hit Jamie with some massive shots. He hit me with some massive shots, and basically we we punched lumps off each other for for seven rounds. And you know, I ended up getting the decision. I ended up stopping Jamie round seven. Jamie were out on his feet. I think I tired him in the early part of the round, early part of the fight, and. You know, we're nominated fight of the year by many, many, many boxing pundits and and boxing papers and boxing news, boxing monthly. Were it were nominated the fight of the year, and so it should be. We 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 give it as all that that fight, and it was funny because it were it weren't long after a couple of weeks after it was the boxing board awards, and me and my wife and Jamie and his wife were up till five six in the morning having a beer together, having a laugh and having a joke, and you know, it were we've been mates ever since. It just goes to show you the respect that people get when they share the ring together and it's something that a lot of people always talk about in boxing is, is they might go in there and punch lumps out of each other but certainly the respect is, is no matter what, whether they've had bad blood in the build-up or they haven't, there's always respect there at the end of the fight. Of course there is, of course is, and that's the, beauty of, that's, the, that's the beauty of boxing. You know, you can, you, know, you can say all you want and you can do all you want but once you've you know, settled it in that ring, that should be it. And and 99.9% of time, of time, it, that is it. You know, it's only the 0.1% where people carry on and are a little bit silly and say, say stupid things. So, but, you know, 99.9%, you know, once you've settled your differences, once whoever's arms raised or if both arms are raised, that's it generally. It's, it's, you know, you give your fellow opponent a hug and, you know, you say well done and you, and you move on. So going into the what we'd say is the latter part of your career now, the last two years of your career, you defended that title, the European title against Luca Messi, stopping Luca Messi, uh, and then you had uh, another fight against an undefeated fighter, Jose Melo Jr., and beat him as well. And then you got the what would be one of the, well, probably arguably in today's age, the biggest name on your record going in there for the WBC Super Welterweight title against Saul Canelo Alvarez. How did that come about? Well, obviously when I beat Jamie, that put me number three in the rankings. When I beat Luca Messi, that put me, I think, number two in the rankings. The only person was above me was Chavez Jr. Now, Chavez Jr. were was saying he was moving up to middleweight, then he weren't, then he was saying he was moving up to middleweight, and then he didn't. And then... They moved him up to middleweight. They moved him up to middleweight, which I was number two. And then, uh, obviously, I become mandatory for, for the Canelo fight for the WBC title. And that was because, obviously, Chavez Jr. couldn't make the light middleweight weight again. So, going back to that, you went over to Mexico to fight Canelo Alvarez. At this point, you know, he wasn't the superstar he is today. However, he was... He wasn't far away from being on the cusp of being that superstar. Everybody was talking about him, especially in America. They were really raving about him at this point. And you went in there and you took the opportunity to fight for the WBC Super Welterweight title against 
Canelo Alvarez in Mexico. Going back then to 2011 and that period of time and that part of your boxing career, was it a case of, you know, this is a, an absolute fantastic opportunity, I'm going to take it with both hands regardless of what people are saying about this young fighter? Yeah, I mean, like you said, everybody was talking about him, especially Golden Boy, or obviously, or his uh, manager, uh, Oscar's his manager. So you knew, you know, he was singing and saying his praises for many, many years before before he was world champion or before I boxed him. So when I boxed him, I knew I was fighting someone who was who, who was a, a a very, very good talent. I mean, listen, you're not you're not WBC world champion for nothing. He was 20, I think 23 at the time. I think I was 35, 36 or something like that. So, you know, I was very confident. Don't get me wrong. I, was, I never go into a fight thinking I'm not going to win this fight. I was very confident. I watched the fight with Matthew Watton, the fight before. I watched some of the... He boxed... Uh, who else did he box? And he got wobbled against. He boxed... Jose Miguel Cotto. Yeah, he boxed Cotto's brother. Cotto's brother wobbled uh, Canelo. So, he wasn't invincible. So, I was... In with a good show, and then you know, obviously the first round, I, I expected him to come and try and pressure me, and he held the center of the ring, so I had to change my game plan straight away. But everything I I tried, he had an answer for, and that's what great champions can do. You know, they can adapt, they can they can change the style from round one, they can change the style to all the way through to round twelve. You know, if the fighter's got ability, he can do things like that, and that, but. Even round eight, round nine, I think, you know, I was still trying to win. I was still trying different things. But the kid just had an answer for everything I tried. And, and that's why the kid is such a great fighter. And the kid is where he is today. So after that fight, obviously, you got stopped. It was in the 12th and final round. So you'd near enough gone the distance with him. And, and obviously, it was at a point where I can imagine you was more than physically exhausted at this point, uh, having 12 rounds, sharing the ring with what has come, become a superstar of today. After, after you got beat off Canelo Alvarez, was there any talk and perception in your mind of the fact that, you know, maybe I'll call it a day I've fought at the highest level now for, for a long period of time and it might be time to call it a day? No, because I thought, you know, I, I've just lost for a WBC world title. You know, I, I can come down to a level and, you know, British, European or something like that. And that's what I did. I came down, I bought Sergei Kamitska, who's a tough, tough fella, a tough fella. I think it was a couple of fights before me or the fight before me. He, he drew against a kid who was 20-0. He beat Jamie Moore. So he, were, he was a tough, tough kid and a big lad at the weight as well. So we, we, we fought. I beat him. I won every round. I put him down in one of the rounds as well. Uh, so I still thought I got a little bit of something left. Yeah, so when I was training in the Kaminsky fight, I knew it was going to be a tough fight. The kid, <laughs> you never got an easy fight if you fought Kaminsky. He was, he was one of them what just made it horrible, tough. He was massive for middleweight, just a big, strong beast. But in that fight, I was, you know when training camp's going well, or you know when you're not having a good camp, I just felt like things weren't, I wasn't doing things in gym what I what I what I normally do. Like I, my style was counter punching and, and moving and making my making my opponents miss or making my sparring partners miss. And, and when I make them miss, I'm in, I'm in a position where I can I can counter and make them pay. But I was trying things and I was just that split second where 
I was trying to counter my opponent and I was just missing or I weren't I weren't on point and and that weren't me. And that was the one time in training when I thought, hold on a minute, what what's going on here? I'm normally you know, I'm normally on point with stuff like this. I don't let anybody if I make someone miss, I make them pay and and they know about it. But I was just that split second too late on on on, on a few sparring sessions and I thought that didn't seem right that. Uh, anyway, you know, I went into the fight. I beat Clitz Gans down, and I think I, I won it by. A, I think it were a, were an eight rounder. I won it by five, five to three, or five to two, or or, or one even, or something like that. Uh, but I won the fight pretty comfortably. It was easy nights work for me. And then after that, I got made mandatory to to fight my my uh, former title, which was the European title against Rabchenko. So Rabchenko was your last fight, it was your final fight of your career, and as you were talking about the, the, the gym and what you was noticing in the gym, did you have any, again, reservations about this fight? Did you did you go into the fight knowing it was your last fight? No, I never went, I, I never went into a fight thinking that, you know, this could be my last fight. I think, I think it's a, da- the, the, the sport is too dangerous to be thinking things like this. I went into the fight comfortable, confident, expecting to beat Rabchenko. So yeah, I went in full of confidence and you know, I thought I thought I just needed to do what I needed to do to beat beat him. He were a young kid coming through. He were he were you know, his record were, were very good. He'd got a lot of a lot of stoppages and KOs on his record, but it were a fight I were very confident in winning. So talk me through the fight then. When you was in there with Rabchenko, obviously, like you're saying, he was he was an undefeated guy at this point. He had 20 fights. He was coming in there for uh, a major title, European title. When you was in the fight, talking back through it, how did you feel at the time you was in there with him? Well, it were it were it were Europe. It were it were going to put me on the world stage. Uh, so there was no way we were going to turn it down. It were like I say, it were a fight. I were confident in 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 winning, and it was just something I were I couldn't wait to get back in the mix and, and get back, you know, get back my former European title, the belt. I had what the belt to beat Jamie Morwee in the fight of the year. It was it was on a, a massive show in Manchester. It was at the Velodrome. So I was very confident and, and I was looking forward to it. And, you know, it, it didn't faze me that I was going in with a young kid, a hungry kid, and a kid what had got a lot of stoppages and knockout on his record. It never fazed me that... that Whoever I went in that ring with, and no matter what record they had, it never fazed me. And, it, it, you know, it was just a fighter like me. He had two arms, two legs. He bled, and just like I did. So I never went in any fight thinking that, you know, I'm fighting someone who's a lot superior than me. It was quite a, quite a close fight. One of the judges had actually had it a draw at the time of the stoppage in round seven, uh, and two of the others had Fravchenko two or three rounds up at that point. But did yeah. you feel at the point where the fight was stopped, you was you was, you were, you was in it, you was there, you was there and thereabouts, you felt like it was quite an even fight at that point? He never, he never hurt me once. He hit me, he hit me some good shots. I remember, I think I hit him in the fifth, fourth or fifth round where... We called it a reverse one shot. I hit him with a left hook and a straight right hand. And, you know, fair play to him. The kid had a chin on him. He he buckled, he, he dipped, he, he squatted. He, he just managed to stay up. He never went down. I felt I was massively in the fight. He never hurt me once. And I think, and then he caught me with a body shot in round seven. And it just wiped me out completely. It just, 
it just sat. If you've ever been it with a body shot, a proper body shot, you know how it feels. And it just really did. It took took me the wind out of my sails. I had nothing, nothing inside me. I dropped. I, I thought I could manage to get up. I got up about nine, and 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 the referee waved it over, and I just had to sit down and get my breath back. But listen, I was massively in the fight. There was nothing in the fight. He won some rounds. I won some rounds, and it was backwards and forwards. I caught him with the best shot of the fight. Never managed to put him down, but it was a good fight. And um, I think, you know, I was, I knew I was coming to the end of, the end of my career. Maybe I could have stepped down and fought for British titles, but that weren't me. That weren't, I weren't, I weren't just doing it for the sake of that. My daughters were, were growing up and, and they was, they was at an age now when, when they could see me coming home and I had black eyes. I had sometimes I had cuts on my eyes and, and things like that. And so they were, they understood the sport by, by the age when I, when I retired. So I wasn't doing it and I wasn't doing it. To, I wasn't upsetting my kids see me with, with black eyes and bruises and swellings. So you made that decision based on that to retire and you retired as a two-time British champion, European champion and four times world title challenger. Would you say you was happy with what you achieved? Yeah, because if you think back at this interview, I, I used to look up to Errol and Johnny Nelson and Brian Anderson when they had their British title belts and I used to, you know, wish and hope that one day that cameras would be in the gym taking pictures and filming me and you know, maybe I could have a belt like that. Not only did I win that British title, I won it outright in record time, which I don't think ever that'll get beat. You know, I, I won international titles. I won the European title fight. I was, you know, I, I, we, we were nominated fight of the year, me and Jamie Moore. I did a lot more than what I expected to do, and I was very, very proud and, and happy with, with how my career panned out. Do you have any regrets over not winning a world title? No. No, not at all. It would have been nice. Things might have been different or things might have been worse. You never know. The life I've got now, I've got two beautiful, healthy kids, two daughters, Ellie and Lisa. My wife, uh, I love my wife. We've been together for 20... Got to get this right, she'll kill me. Uh, 20, coming up to 22 years. We've got, we've got a great life. Uh, we've got our own businesses. Uh, I, I live in a lovely house. And I'm very happy and content with, with, with my life at the minute. So just talking a little bit about your career in terms of bills you've been on, people you've shared the ring with, would you would you be able to tell us which bill you would consider the best bill you was on in your career? Um, obviously, top of the bill in, in, in Mexico, fighting Canelo, that was an, an amazing achievement, amazing, amazing night. The night we had in Sheffield, the first full monte, myself, Naz, uh, Joe Calzaghi Box, Chris Eubanks, that was an unbelievable show. We had Richard Branson coming in our dressing rooms, wishing as well. All the superstars were at that, that event, the full monte, the first one. I boxed on the pitch at uh, the Millennium Stadium against Gary Lockett. We fought in front of, I think, around 25,000 people. I've boxed on some great shows. I've been involved in some great events. I've met some amazing people through my boxing career. Not just boxers, but film stars, music stars. I've, you know, I've, I've lived the dream. I've, um, 
And now I'm here to tell. And I'm here telling the story to you. So talking about the gym, he was referring to being back at the Winker Bank and obviously sharing the gym with the likes of uh, of Errol and Johnny and Nazim and all the other young guys that came in there afterwards as well. Talk about what life was like back then, and just explain to give people an insight to what it was like sharing the gym with these guys because obviously we all know them as the guys that went on to do great things in the sport. But what was it really like? sharing the gym with him? Well, obviously me and Naz were best mates growing up. We um, did absolutely everything together. We trained together. We we, uh, we socialised together. It was, um, yeah, it, so the, the 90s, uh, when, we were, when we were coming through, it were, it were great times uh, for the gym, for Brendan's gym. Uh, we had so many champions, so many good fighters in that gym. We supported everybody, every, every, every fighter in the gym. We went up and down the country. We supported everybody when, you know, we used to support Naz in America. I went to all over, you know, Germany, Denmark to support Johnny Nelson because we were really, really good friends. Yeah, the gym was just a family. It was, the gym just did everything together. All the, all the big names in that gym all supported each other. And that's, you know, it were, it were a big family back then. And what about, the main man himself there's so many stories that get told about Brendan and, and the way he was not just as a trainer but as a man himself and we hear it from Dominic we've heard it from various different people that spent time down at the Winkerbank gym but in your opinion what was it like to, to have Brendan for all them years when you was training there Brendan was you know I spent I spent more time with Brendan than I, than I did my own parents you know if I weren't if I weren't in the gym we were on the road Brendan Take us to the show. He was, he was just, just an unbelievable person. He changed so many lives uh, in that gym and in and around the Winkerbank area. No, no, he just touched a lot of people, gave a lot of people hope, gave a lot of people success, put a lot of people on the on the right path. He just was an amazing, an amazing man. And there's nothing, you know, you can't say anything else about Brendan. But just being an amazing man and legend. I've heard stories about Brendan where when guys were in the gym, he'd basically part of the part of the sort of regime, not just for training, but he'd make the guys go out and pick litter up. Is that something that Brendan would do? We all did it. We all did it. From from when we were at school, when leaving school, he had British, European, and world champions picking pick litter up around the gym. That was just a uh, that was just what what Brendan did for us. I mean. You know, I did it, Naz did it, Johnny Nelson did it, Errol Graham did it, everybody did it. It was just to show the respect that we had for Brendan, that we'd do basically anything anything they wanted us to do, we'd do it. And that will honour it, Brendan's, you know, if you can keep your, your own doorstep tighter, yeah, you're doing well. So let's talk about what life has been like for you after boxing you've been retired now since 2012 seven years i know you have got your own gym and i know you, you you're training kids down there but what is it you actually get up to so i'm in the gym more or less every day all day my, my day consists of you know getting to the gym whether i open the gym or i've got a couple of staff who open the gym um i'm in there training the lads in the morning i do i do a lot of personal training sessions in the gym and uh, the gym is not just a boxing gym for boxers. It's a it's a gym for the general public. You know, for a small gym, we we're really really doing well. We've got about, I think last time I looked, we were about 240, 250 members in the gym. 
and it's just a, a nice gym, uh, friendly gym. The pros help everybody. The amateurs help everybody. Everybody trains with everybody. You know, it's something I learned from Brendan that, you know, you, everybody trains with everybody. There's no one bigger than the gym, no matter what level of, no matter what level of boxing you get to, whether you're Central Area Champion, British Champion, Commonwealth European, or even World Champion. You know, you help if you can help someone in the, in, in your gym. That that that's what you do. Are you training any fighters? Are you planning to be a manager of any fighters? Is, is that something you want to be involved in? Or are you happy to be doing what you're doing now? So no, at the minute I'm managing about about four, about five or six, five or six professionals. We're an amateur gym. We're an affiliated amateur club. Uh, we've had a couple of kids out on the road, uh, amateur fighters, and we're doing really well there. Like I say, I manage about five or six professionals. I'm doing uh, a lot of promotion shows. I mean, this year we did a, an event at the Magna Centre with Tyson Fury, which we absolutely smashed. We had about about 800 people screaming and shouting Tyson Fury. That went was a massive success. Uh, next week, oh, in a two-week time tomorrow, I'm putting a, we're putting a show on myself and Steffi Bull at the Magna Centre with nine professional fights. The main fight is the young girl, Terry Harper. She's fighting for an IBO world title fight on the card. We've got, I've got my lad, Callum Hancock, who's having his, I think it's his 10th or 11th professional fight. And we've got, we've got, you know, we've got a great card. We're probably going to, we've sold the show out because of obviously what kind of an event we're putting on a world title fight at the Magna. So my life's just busy. It's just always, we've always got something going on. It's just great at the minute. I've got, you know, I'm, there's not, not enough minutes in the day for me at the minute with we, 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 what we've got going on, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I'd much rather be like this than twiddling my thumbs and not knowing what I'm going to do. So it's safe to say then that you're not walking away from boxing anytime soon? No, not at all. Not at all. I've got plenty, I've got plenty to, to pass on to, to the young kids coming through in the gym and, and the professionals I've got in the gym. And, you know, my goal is now to, to get that world title. I wasn't lucky enough to win a world title myself, but, you know, in, the, in sh- such a short space of time of being a trainer, I've had a Commonwealth champion, a British champion, an English champion, uh, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing really, really well in sh- such a short space of time as a, as a, as a trainer, as a, as a manager, I'm, I'm getting, getting big fights for my, for my lads. I've just got, we've just come back from uh, Spain uh, last week. Um, I got young Razak Najib, who uh, who fought for an EU title in in Spain? He lost on a, a close decision on points. So I'm getting I'm getting opportunities for my lads, and I'm getting them big fights, and I'm getting them in on shows. I've had Callum Hancock fighting on Kel Brook show last year at the Sheffield Arena. So Samo Mason, who's English champion at minute, he fights on the seventh of September in London uh, on a Steve Goodwin show in. If Sam wins and defends his English title, he becomes number one to fight Robert Davis Jr. for a British title. So I've got loads to pass on and, I'm, and, and I can't wait to, to turn out more champions. Going back to your career finally then, Ryan, just a couple of quick fire questions about it. Toughest fight of your career, which one would you say it was? Alvarez. Not even the Jamie Moore one? I'll be honest, always through the fight, no matter how tough it got with Jamie, I always believed I was going to win this fight. You know, with the Canelo fight, everything I tried, he had an answer for. And I just, 
as long as the fight went on, it just got more and more difficult and difficult. But with Jamie, I just, I don't know, from round two, I remember going back to the corner and I, I was getting more and more confident going back to the corner after each round. And I just knew I was going to get to Jamie. Who would you say, at the at the time you've been in the ring with him, was the best fighter you shared the ring with? Again, Canelo has to be. Well, he's obviously a superstar, as we've talked about earlier in the conversation. He's a yeah. superstar of boxing now, and to be able to say you've shared the ring with the guy and took him practically all the way in the fight is something he to, me. to If behold. you've watched that fight, he hit me low in round 12, and it really were low. And he, he, I tried to hide it, but he must have seen it got me, and it really took the wind out of my sails, and the referee... You know, he never even warned him. He just stopped, carry on, and, and Canelo went for it. And he knew he'd got me. He knew he'd, 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 he'd caught me with, with, with a low shot, but he just finished me and the referee waved it all over. So, But if I'd have got a couple of... If I'd have got a minute or something like that when the referee would have given me a minute, I think I'd have seen that final bell, but hey-ho. What would you say has been your best night in boxing? I think I've got two. Uh, I think first winning my British title when I beat former world champion Paul Silky Jones, and then when I beat Jamie Moore, uh, because I were a massive underdog, and a lot of people thought I were going to get beat that fight, um, we proper defied all, all, all odds on, on winning that fight, so I think I've got to the first British chat title and, and then beating Jamie Moore. And in terms of some of the nights in boxing where they've not gone as well for you, would, what would you say would be the, the worst night in your career? So again, I'd say the world title, my world title with uh, Jason Matthews, you know, obviously in hindsight, you know, we, we you know, experience again, uh, went into the fight thinking I could just land one on his chin and knock him out. And I'd say the uh, Lee Brundell fight, you know, I should have totally listened to people around me and probably should have pulled out of that fight but listen you know you, you you live and learn you're making mistakes and you lick your wounds and carry on Ryan I've got to say it's been an absolute pleasure to, to obviously have you on to conduct the interview and talk about your career from start to finish and your memories of certain nights throughout your career your memories of obviously sharing the gym with all the guys that you've mentioned that all the people that are listening to will certainly know about uh, it's been an absolute honour and, and, and as I've said to you in the past I was always a fan myself growing up and it was it was uh, great to be able to sit down with you and, and go through some of them notable nights in your career even the ones that didn't pan out the way you wanted them to it was good to hear your stories about what happened on the night and the lead up to things and how things were and also the good times the nights when you had the some of the best nights of your life winning british titles european titles sharing the ring with some of the best fighters out there it's been a pleasure and thank you so much for coming on sean i've really enjoyed it i've really you know i've gone back and i've turned the clocks thinking about and talking about my career has been great. I've really, really enjoyed talking about the good old days. It certainly was great to look back at the career of Ryan Rhodes. Really enjoyed speaking to Ryan about his whole career, about the stories of growing up, training at the Winkerbank, the moving on, the big fights with Jamie Moore, sharing the ring with one of the greatest fighters in today's era of boxing. And also to hear about what life's been like since retiring from the sport and the fact that Ryan is so still heavily involved in the sport and he's trying to achieve through one of his fighters what he didn't manage to achieve himself which was to win a world title through one of them and he's one of the fighters that a lot of people will argue was one of the best British fighters never to win a world title. 
But what he did achieve in British boxing was unbelievable. The fact that he was a two-time British champion, a European champion. Yes, he challenged for the world title on four separate occasions, but a lot of fighters get into the sport to go on to become a world champion. Not everybody succeeds, but to be able to say he was a British champion, a European champion, shared the ring with some of the great fighters of the modern era, for me, you can't really argue with much more than that. And the fact that he's been able to go on and have a great life outside of the ring, be able to contribute to fighters' careers, pass on his knowledge, passing on his wisdom... And still involved in the sport at such a high level is fantastic to hear. And I really, really enjoyed sitting down to speak to Ryan about his career. And I hope you've all enjoyed listening to Ryan tell his stories about growing up through boxing and his journey through boxing. Some of the most memorable nights he was involved in. Some of the nights that weren't so memorable or didn't go his way. It was also good to hear the stories behind all that and behind how he went on to achieve what he achieved in the sport. So guys, if you have enjoyed listening to this episode of The Life and Times Of, why don't you go and check out some of our other episodes. We've got episodes with Bad Chad Dawson, Angel Manfredi, Barry Jones, James Bonecrusher-Smith, Kevin Kingpin-Johnson. Go and check them out. They're on our feed on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or Stitcher or Player FM or Spreaker or Spotify. Any of them platforms you can find BTR Boxing Podcast on. If you've not already subscribed and this is your first time listening please go and subscribe to any of them platforms to listen to all the latest episodes. Check out our Legendary Night series, the Ones to Watch series. Go and leave us a rating, leave us a review. Follow us on social media. We're at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of The Life and Times of Ryan Rhodes. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.